Hey folks, welcome to the Unsung Podcast. I am your host Mark Fraser and I'm joined by two fellows from the film Highlander. One's called Corin McLeod. I can't remember what Sean Connery's character's name's called. It's like uh, Carlos Juanito Rodriguez Bortito III or something. From yeah, the, from, uh, from from Egypt, from Gorgi, via Spain, <laughs> via Glasgow. I am going to be uh, the Scottish one. Uh, mm. I am incredibly Scottish. I was born in the Highlands okay. of Scotland, and I am the Spanish one. <laughs> Spanish. Uh, just prior to recording, we were musing on the fact that we saw a film critic double inverted commas suggesting that uh, the original Highlander movie was nothing to write home about. I fell off my chair. Absolute nonsense. His name is Juan Sanchez Villabos Ramirez. I was pretty close. Yeah, I mean, that isn't his name, but that is how Sean Connery would pronounce it in the movie. So we'll let you know. Juan Sanchez Villabos. He is. He is an Egyptian immortal. Fucking, fucking figure that one out. Egyptian as fuck. <laughs> Actually, we'll maybe we'll maybe do a callback to this moment when I do my nexus. That's that's quite nice. Uh, remind me of that. Oh. Well. What are we doing this week? Yeah, hang on, hang on, hold your horse. We've got, we've got admin to do. We've got admin to do. First of all, shout out, shout out to Glenn McLeod uh, for giving us... I see it all, come, all comes full circle, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Circle. The Glenn McLeod, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, shout out to Glenn McLeod who's given us some uh, monies this week. We appreciate your love. Um, if you're offended by the Highlander commentary, then deal with it I guess <laughs> yeah we were wondering why we were losing patrons uh, maybe that's it because we slag our audience off but yeah we're about to restructure our tiers on Patreon um, more information on that when <laughs> restructure our tiers that sounds like some sort of emotional development as well uh, restructure your tiers then <laughs> I'm, the, I'm the emo one so I suppose it makes sense um, so more information that'd be, on a, that. that'd be a good name for your band's album Restructuring you your tears. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, actually, you know, that is actually pretty good. We have to keep that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah, O-Rain, restructure your tears. See, it's, it's also got water in it as well. Yeah. Anyway, uh, yeah, so go and check out our Patreon and see some of the cool things that we've got in our tears there. Unsung.net forward slash donate to get a link to that and also a link to our PayPal if you fancy a one-time donation. We have, last week we put out a bit as a bonus content, uh, one of which, are, both of which our subscribers had seen. Um, we're doing more of them in future, got more interesting and fun things <laughs> planned. Um, more sound as a pound, um, some demos from our first bands, which are definitely going to want to listen to, by the way, because it's going to be <laughs> fucking riot. Um, and yeah, just a lot of cool stuff. So, you know what we do, unsungpod.net forward slash donate, you know, just chuck us a few quid, that'd be, that'd be pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. If you like the vibe of the shows, but you know we we tend to go on a bit. the The bonus stuff is a bit more bite size, so it's you mm-hmm. know if you're just making some beans and toast, uh, taking a poo, that yep. kind of thing, nice relaxed poo, obviously, yeah, of course, uh, mm-hmm. you know it should it should get you through it. Might even help. Might some of them <laughs> might help, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, as you said earlier on there, Chris, what are we doing this week? It's David's week. I know. Well. This is one of these ones where I haven't listened to the album since about 16. <laughs> um, but you mean the, the the age of 16, not the year 16? Well, yeah, both. Yeah, I've gone for Skunk and Nancy and their debut album Paranoid and Sunburn.
I don't, I, I don't, I'm not sure why. <laughs> no, but I did, I'm kind of glad that I've done it because it's it's quite an interesting story. They're quite an interesting band to talk about, and did uh, yeah, I did, I did like them for for a while. I I listened to this record. <laughs> I'm trying, you know, but it's the only record I ever had of theirs. Even though I remember seeing uh, Stoosh and what was the one after that? Poster Gasmic Chill all the time in our price in Inverness and never never buying them. But yeah, a kind of funny one. And I just, I feel like they're a band that were against the odds, got big in the 90s. And yet they, we look back now and they were actually even bigger than we remember. Like they've mm. kind of been forgotten about, even though they are a standout band because they don't really fit in anywhere. Um, you yeah, know, I, mean, I have to admit, I was, I was kind of into them momentarily as well. Uh, I think I first heard them on... Bruce Dickinson's show maybe on Radio 1 back on Radio 1 in the UK actually had some pretty cool stuff in it uh, Bruce Dickinson's show far from being just metal was uh, lots and lots of good stuff on that um, I mean, that's where I first got into Bad Religion that's where I first got into things like Head Swim and there's, there's quite a lot of cool things in there um, it must have been maybe early 95 really early 95 because mm. it was the track Selling Jesus but I think it was the track Selling Jesus out with the context of the record itself um, and I was kind of into that sound at the time you know it was kind of post Nirvana not by much by the way bearing in mind that Kurt had barely been in the grave for a year at that point but it was post Nirvana so you know Foo Fighters were just sort of emerging Dave had those mm-hmm. those tracks poking out Heads from as I mentioned Bush were a thing even I mean good god it's uh, this quote is going to come back to haunt me but even fucking Stereophonics for about six months the first mm. album you know I was like maybe this will be alright yeah, yeah I remember A Thousand Trees was yeah. on a free CD that I got with Shreddies and I really enjoyed it <laughs> yeah he, d- he had that voice it was kind of gruff it was like there were some riffs in it but you know it didn't work out that way but you know Skunk and Nancy had the edgy chord changes which we'll talk about in the context of this album definitely got my attention and I think What's kind of key is, you know, being a few years older than you guys, especially, like anyone watching UK TV at that time with like TFI Friday and that sort of late era Britpop saturation, the lad rock, you know, you were just wading through TV trying to pick out bits of stuff that you liked. And if you weren't into Britpop, especially the later Britpop, there, as we spoke about the Britpop mixtape, there were some moments of that that were actually not too bad. But as it got more and more saturated and, and sh- it was obvious that it was already dying out, the music was dire and the lad culture was horrendous. And so stuff like Skunk and Nancy was actually really quite refreshing. So, yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd, they're not an eye roll band. You know, they, they, they were pretty exciting and mm. it was Really exciting to see people of colour in rock music at the time, you know, even before the, the, the total onset of wokeness, I think everybody I knew was aware of the fact that we needed more representation for people of colour in rock music, especially and women in rock music and female people of colour in rock music and queer female. I mean, just so many boxes were ticked and it was so nice that mm-hmm. some this band appeared that were breaking so many boundaries in one go and doing it and sounding pretty good in, in the process. Yeah, they still have. Uh, I was looking, obviously, on their Spotify, and they, they've still got over like, almost a million listeners a month. There's a lot of people my age with too much time in their hands. <laughs> <let's be honest. laughs> but they had some big tracks from the 90s that will be on a lot of, like, sort of playlists from that sort of time. 
That's what I was going to say. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's clearly going to be a whole bunch of people that still listen to this record and the records are on about it and have that that real connection to the 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 emotion of the era when they they first heard them, you know, and and take getting kind of transported back to that when they hear it. And there's probably a bunch of the CDs of this record sitting in Poundland as well. We yeah, the, uh, these these guys are definitely a Poundland. Band, but we'll yeah. we'll we'll talk about this as well as maybe being a weakness. But they also cover quite a lot of bases. So people that weren't necessarily into you know punk or rock or metal or funk could still find things in this sound um mm. and that is maybe why you know they did not hiding from the fact they literally sold millions of records in the 90s looking at their profile now you wouldn't remember it they don't have a high media profile now they're not like sort of fondly regarded artistically necessarily although i think skin probably is as a mm. sort of you know a band leader an icon yeah um, i think you know you're totally right we'll get we'll Go into that in a wee bit more detail when we go through the records. I think their total global sales are about four and a bit million, mm-hmm. apparently, according to Billboard. Um, which, given that they came out in the mid to late 90s, isn't actually that much for a band that had their profile. And then, as you say, in in the great changeover, I don't know what it will become known as in, in, in the future as people look back, but in that move from hard copy... To digital format to online yeah they do seem like they maybe fell through the the cracks a wee bit because what was a huge album at the time what was a fairly ubiquitous band at the time has surprisingly low plays on, on uh, things like spotify um so yeah let, let's kind of talk about that as as we go through we should probably just we've got to remember this is an international podcast and one of the interesting things about this band is that they really didn't translate in a way that i maybe would have thought they might to the likes of the usa or even even elsewhere so we should we should just introduce them you know we should just sort of explain who they are to make this a little bit accessible and try and pique people's curiosity if they've never heard them yeah, certainly. So they formed in sort of mid nineties. March nineteen ninety four was their first gig in London, and they were made up of Skin on lead vocals, Deborah Dyer. Um, also, she apparently played theremin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Martin Ace Kent, Richard Cass Lewis, and uh, Mark Richardson on drums. Uh, actually, not. I think it was originally Robbie France. Robbie France was, was there. Yeah. He was like he actually died in. 2012 um yeah fairly early he did he's, he's sort of interesting he was um he was in the band ufo he was in the band wishbone ash he yeah was he was this, like a proper old school metal drummer yeah it, but he'd also been in this german synth pop band called alphaville who were actually pretty big Yeah, um, mentioned them in the last episode. Yeah, exactly. This, yeah, and uh, well, if you're factory episode, sorry, that's right. And uh, he also he was a guy that recorded the drums for Army of Me by Bjork. Yeah, 
Yeah. So like this guy got around. He'd I think he'd originally been a member of Diamond Head way back in the new wave of British heavy metal in the early eighties. Um, but yeah, he died at the age of fifty two, I think, in two thousand and twelve from a, a ruptured aorta. Mm. Uh, sadly, but yeah, because uh, they had a they had a big split as well. They split in two thousand and one and reformed in two thousand and nine. So there's a kind of big gaping wound in the midst of their their career um, when you know various members did various things of varying levels of irrelevance I think to be blunt um, the name did you look into that that's kind of interesting uh, yeah that's right Skunk Anansi uh, now they've, they've kind of tweaked the spelling a bit because Anansi is actually it's like a character from West African folklore especially yeah. in Ghana um, and it's spelled A-N-A-N-S-I uh, I, I'm not quite sure where the, the, the other E came from maybe that's a, a variation from another country and the skunk thing apparently was just to sound a bit edgier and Anasi Anasi was like or Anansi was like a Spider-Man figure a spider god sort of like a bit like Loki I think is is one of the analogies I, I saw was that he's kind of a trickster god that's a bit of an anti-hero um, and is usually a spider but could take other figures for different stories uh, but supposedly celebrated uh, because he could turn his weaknesses into a virtue um, and as a result it be- apparently the character of Anansi became particularly popular within slave colonies and during the slave trade uh, because of that idea of the ability to turn your weaknesses against your oppressors so use them to your advantage it was sort of a a kind of rallying uh, anecdote for people whose you know morale was understandably shot to fuck. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I believe that uh, Neil Gaiman uh, was in American Gods, in American Gods, Mister Nancy, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, Mister Nancy. That's based mm-hmm. on Nancy, yeah. But I mean, obviously, the, the the backstory regarding slavery and stuff, as we'll find out, Skunk and Nancy were a particularly political band, which made them stand out as well. And so, Skin, uh, that was a big part of the reason behind choosing that character. Yeah, so 1994 they played the first gig and so Cass Lewis, the bassist, he played on Introducing the Hardline according to Terence Trent Darby. In 1987, so he's got like proper... AOR chops. chops. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, Mark Richardson, he used to live in Dunblane. Yeah, I saw that. He got his first drum in Dunblane in the 70s from his, his grandparents. It's a yeah. quaint little town, smallest city in Britain. It's got a cathedral, so it's technically a city, even, mm-hmm. though, it's, even though it's about the size of the palm of my hand. Mm-hmm. Um, and he'd been in like a couple of hard rock bands in the early 90s, I think called Little Angels and Blow, B L O W. You don't remember Little Angels? No. Nah. Mm. Yeah. Never remember Little Angels. And I remember Blow as well. Um, and then Martin Ace Kent on guitar. Who <laughs> fucking that middle name, honestly. I that know. Is so, that is that is Daz fuck. But he also, like, there's just a specific look for men who used to be in rock bands, Brit rock yeah. bands in the 90s. Yeah, that's true. And they all wear the same hat. And they hang about guitar shops now. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, um, the, you know, I think 
also for people out with the UK, but also maybe just to jog the memories of people that do know Skunk and Nancy, like it's important to remember the remember the musical context. So first show in ninety four, first album in ninety five, kinda peaking around about ninety six, ninety seven, ninety eight. You know, they were never really far from the news at that time. It's like late era Britpop and they were seen as Brit rock, which was something that was sort of starting to develop as a bit of a I've seen them described as uh leading the rebellion against Britpop, you know, mm. a response to the kind of namby, trite, tweeness that bands like Spaced and all that started to do, all that kind of like weediness. Even bands like Supergrass, who were technically part of Britpop, started to rebel against it with singles like Richard III. And there was a tr- there was a, a clear movement towards something a little bit harder, to, to be a little bit less commercial, basically a little bit less conformist, because Britpop, was becoming the mainstream and these bands wanted to maintain some kind of edge and Skunk and Nancy were kind of on the on, on the one of the kind of leading edges of that um, and Skin at the time used to quite notoriously describe them as clit rock because a big part of their appeal was to try and involve young women in music and obviously there's all the other narratives regarding feminism and LGBT rights and so on so yeah I mean there was they were kind of the leading edge of something a bit harder that was emerging in the British music scene like they're one of those bands that I guess because they were in London, we've talked about this. They basically played one show, sold it out. Then they were just able to go sign, spend six weeks recording the record, uh, and they were voted best new British band by uh, in Kerrang before they'd actually released the record. Nineteen ninety five. Yeah. I mean, for anybody that's not in the UK or hasn't like slaved away in a provincial band in the UK, the London effect is a situation whereby. Bands that just spring into existence in London get signed quite often before they're anywhere near good enough to actually compete on on a live circuit. And then you go on tour and you play with London bands and, you know, it's far from always the case, but there's a higher than average occurrence of London bands being pretty shoddy live because they've been picked up so soon Mm -hmm. and, and having to sort of hone their chops very, very quickly. Whereas the provincial bands quite often spend more time gigging, trying to get noticed, sending demos to London to try and get heard, you know. The people that work for record labels don't really want to walk far from their flat to find the band that's, you know, they've left their homework to the last minute, so <laughs> they're not going to get a train to fucking Carlisle, you know. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, in, in terms of the Brit rock movement, I think like when that Britpop movement gave way to Brit rock, a lot of kind of interesting bands started to merge over here. So, some of them are still around, some of them did sort of have longevity. Uh, the vast majority of them didn't. Um, I mean, Skunk and Nancy, Dave was saying, they, they straddled a lot of sounds. I think that will become a bit of a theme for a discussion about them. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, it's definitely fair to say they were heavily, heavily insp- influenced by Rage Against the Machine in mm-hmm. the States. That will come no back more. as well. And Faith No More a bit, yeah. But in terms of the peers over here at the time, you know, I mentioned Stereophonics unavoidably. Yeah, they were the lighter end of it, but they were their uh, feeder. I think Mark Richardson actually went on and drummed for afterwards. Mm-hmm, yeah, after, after the death, John Lee. Mm-hmm. yeah, John took his own life. Um, Muse, they were they were kind of peers of theirs. I, I think one that's quite close is Three Colors Red. Remember them? Mm-hmm. 
was going to going to mention them actually. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah. When it's got that bigger sort of clearer, um, you know, arpeggiated chords and quite the sort of slower ballady power rock, that's mm. definitely very three colours red. Um, what on the heavier side of it, the early incarnation of the band Head Swim. Uh, their, their first album is a heavy record It's a big, heavy, gothy rock record Maybe has lots of elements of bands like Paradise Lost and stuff in it mm-hmm. um, so, But they were still on the fringes of that I mean Radiohead back then were a rock band They weren't really a Britpop band They had lighter tunes, but they were they were loud. They were a guitar band. Ash, who we mentioned on the uh, Sounds of Pound episode for subs, uh, uh, one that I think is really relevant, Terror Vision. Yeah, Terror Vision and... And also Reef, funnily enough. Reef, absolutely. Uh, Terrorvision had like a bit like Skunk and Ancy, had a lot of breakthrough potential. They had a lot of big singles. They had stuff like Tequila. They obviously had Oblivion. They had tracks like Easy. They had some real hits over here at least. And they were, unlike Skunk and Ancy, they weren't political though. They were like a fun band. They were like a sort of good time band. Um, they, had, I mean, by the time they were doing Tequila, they almost had hints of the offspring yeah. like sometimes, you know. Um, therapy. That's one that I think Skunk and Nancy probably shared the stage with at some point. Do you remember Baby Chaos? Yeah, I remember Baby Chaos. Baby yeah. Chaos were big Still at gone. that time. Mm. Yeah. Why? I don't know. Um, the Wild Hearts. Wild Hearts that we were talking about them today still going as well yeah. um, formed the thing is the Wild Hearts and another band that I would group in with them The Almighty they were those two bands were kicking about then but they were sort of seen as like the, they were a bit they old were, school They were the progenitors of that scene Yeah, Wild Hearts formed I think in 89 in Newcastle And the Almighty I'm pretty sure They're from Glasgow, they were 88 um, Almighty was like fronted by a guy called Ricky Warwick Who was sort of quite frequently in the press at that time They got a second wind around about the time of this movement though That, that kind of shone a light back on them as an influence Likewise the Wild Hearts had a lot of good albums that predated it, like Earth versus the Wild Hearts and Fuck, things like that. But they then went on to bring out a bunch of new stuff that did pretty well. Um, also, at that time, you had bands like Symposium. Yeah, 
and they were sharing like cover CDs with Skunk and Ansi. Uh, Honeycrack, which was a band that sort of started as an offshoot from a guy called CJ, who I think, I don't know if he was kicked out or if he left the Wild Hearts. There was a Wild Hearts Three Colours Red tie-in as well, and I don't know if it was something to do with him. I'm not sure what the what the link was there. Uh, one that's still relevant to this day is the band A. Remember A? all gone A are actually supporting Reef at the QMU next April <laughs> Daniel Picard doesn't play with them anymore incidentally yeah this is that's what I was going to say the bass was it, he was a bassist wasn't mm, he yeah yeah so the bassist for me went on to front one of probably the most high profile rock shows on British radio mm-hmm. for the last decade uh, Daniel Picard on Radio 1 um, and he was in a band they shared a member with Slipknot is that Crocodile yeah, the guy from Crocodile ended up in Slipknot. I, th- I can't remember what was it the what bass player. Maybe yeah, he maybe yeah. took over when um, your man Paul died. Yeah, I think I think the Alessandro his name is. Aye, yeah. You should probably mention all these connections, eh? We're just doing a whole big long nexus. Yeah, so I mean, just a couple others on the heavier end of the spectrum, uh, and a band that I think have quite a lot in common with Skunk and Nancy was One Minute Silence. Um, the One Minute Silence so. were, were, They played with a lot of um, New metal bands But One Minute Silence Were very much like The British Rage Against the Machine You know They were they were fronted by this guy Called Brian Barry Or Brian Yap Barry Because he's motor mouth Was he not from Gibraltar? They were Irish They were Irish They were an Irish band I think he was maybe from Gibraltar Yeah Technically still British yeah, but uh, a bit like Rage Against the Machine, One Minute Silence tended to have really overt political themes, and I think that also made them sort of like spiritually consistent with Skunk and Nancy because there weren't that many bands at the time that were being so outspoken. You had Pitch Shifter, but Pitch Shifter had a much more industrial sound. Um, but yeah, so One Minute Silence were, were a comparison, and another one I guess is Kilt of This, and again, Kilt of This were even further into like new metal territory. But the, these bands were all sort of emerging from this underground British rock scene, and they would have been in the same stages in different parts of London at different times, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Earthtone uh, Nine. Nine probably had a slightly toolier sound, but yeah, they they probably yeah they're not so far from it that you can't imagine them definitely on festivals and things like that. Yeah. But I mean, the, the, the context is kind of key because it, it was a strange time where Britain was trying to shed the, the, the husk of Britpop and move into something a bit chunkier. And that sort of then evolved into this kind of like 100 Reasons, Hell is for Heroes, Ruben, slightly more woke and interesting hardcore, post-hardcore influence thing that came a few years later. Which was then also basically immediately replaced by um, Garage Rock and... You know, mm-hmm. Franz Ferdinand and the Libertines and just NME. The extinction mm-hmm. level event of the Strokes. Yeah. First, yeah. first EP, basically, yeah. Um, I mean, you mentioned they got the 95 Best British Band by Kerrang. They also got the Hall of Fame Award in 2019 from Kerrang. Did you see that? Yeah, yeah. Um, but I mean, at that time as well, in the 90s, Skunk and Nancy, you know, you mentioned the London Effect. They did enjoy quick success. They ended up touring just in the 90s with U2 Aerosmith, Bad Religion, Feeder, Lenny fucking Kravitz, Soulfly, 
Seven Dust, The Rollins Band, fucking Ramstein, yep. and Muse amongst Perfect Circle, Stained, <laughs> Stained. I mean, they they were like to some extent. And I don't mean this to. Uh, this is not intended to dismiss their music, but they were something of a utility band that like you could put them on with a lot of different styles of music, and it mm. wouldn't necessarily give you whiplash. And also, I'm guessing because they were big in Britain and a proven sort of proven on the European circuit, you could take them on a stadium tour in the US mm. and their label will have wanted them to try and break the US mm. and kept pumping them onto those uh, tours. But they will have been able to command the stage and have the songs to give a good, you know, 25 minutes before fucking... Uh, Account of themselves, yeah. And, you know, it, it does amaze me a little bit that Skunk and Ancy didn't do better in the States. If, I mean, if you're playing with like Lenny Kravitz and Aerosmith, the only problem is... Those gigs are potentially too big because let's be honest, a Lenny Kravitz audience or an, even an Aerosmith audience by that point, they're not watching the support band. Yeah, they're mm-hmm. just like at the bar, shut the fuck up, let's get Steve Tyler out here. You know, I think you're, they're probably likely to enjoy more success. I mean, it seems ironic, but with the likes of Seven Dust or Muse or something like that, you know, or even Roland's band probably is a good shout, you know, because mm-hmm. a Roland's band audience you know henry rollins was good at pushing his supports um it's a really interesting anecdote by the way seen one of those early u.s tours when they were trying to break it do you know that they had one of their shows cancelled because of an anti-fascist process (laughs) (laughs) so uh, they showed up to perform at this concert to find that the set had been pulled um and there was an anti-fascist demonstration going on outside and then the the promoter says to them well you've got a song called little baby swastika right and skin's like well, yeah, and and then he said, you're a skinhead, right? And she was like, yeah, but, and he was like, and the name of the band's Skunkinatsi, right? And she was like, <laughs> and it apparently, it's a true story, apparently the show got pulled because of those three factors. That's amazing. Who who needs context? <laughs> That's how fucking bored and, and reactionary the, the far left were in the 90s, man. They had nothing to do. They didn't know how good they had it. They could afford to go out there and fucking pick it at a queer, black, feminist rock singer's fucking concert. That actually is going to raise its head again because Skin's politics is very interesting and she's had some fascinating insights into things over the years um, Dave, it's good few episodes ago now as well but one of the things that you said that blew my mind was that you are absolutely right, in 1989 Skunk and Nancy headlined Glastonbury which is an enormous festival in the UK for anyone that's not uh, familiar with it Beyonce has subsequently headlined this festival and was then widely reported as having been the first uh, yeah, first black women to uh, headline Glastonbury and then, you know, that went out in the press and everybody was like, oh, that's great. Quite a lot of people were like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Skunk and Nancy did this in fucking 1999. Yeah, totally. They headlined, they were the last band to play the main stage in the 20th century. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely played on the Sunday night. And this all kind of came to light, especially because Stormzy, uh, I mean, what, what style of music does Stormzy do now? I don't really, you, you guys Grime. Know. They're grime. He's grime. Grime, yeah. grime hero. So Stormzy basically put a thing out about being the first black British artist to headline Glastonbury, at which point Skunk and Nancy just tweeted him and said, sorry mate, did that 20 yeah. fucking years ago, <laughs> literally. And they, they resolved that he actually put out a public statement apologising, you know, and, and they were like, nah, Storms is cool. But Skin's quoted as saying, I was way more irritated when Beyonce said she was the first black woman I really like Stormzy. I think he does a lot of good. I would never tear that guy down. I would never start a beef and take that moment away from him. But I did have to stick up for myself. 
But that just kind of shows that they were breaking ground and yet we're still kind of forgetting about them, which is really interesting. Can we take a wee dive into the discography a wee bit? They've got six albums. As we said, they're around about four million, four and a bit million worldwide sales. It, although, admittedly, the reporting for that was in 2001. But I'm going to go out on a limb and say that Skunk and Nancy haven't shifted huge amount more. I would probably guess. Given that they broke up then, and then by the time they reformed, CDs were sort of the kind of thing you put in a frame, not in a music player. And they've definitely not had the same sort of profile since their reformation as they did in their heyday. Mm-hmm. So you've picked their debut, which was 1995. We'll come back mm-hmm. to this, but long story short, this album peaked at number eight here. Um, I mean, it, it only sold about 400,000, which for the 90s isn't that much um, in, in these lands. But it was released on One Little Indian Records, which is now a, a cancelled name <laughs> and renamed, uh, what are they called now again? One Little Independent Records. Oh yeah, just one little independent record. So. One little Washington Redskins records. Yep. Um, they they actually they brought out a little baby swastika as a sort of radio only single ahead of it. Uh, Two thousand copies of it, which I think are kind of collectible, or as you can mm-hmm. imagine, are quite collectible now. Um, but we'll come back to that because there were some big singles in that. They followed it the year after, sensibly, riding the wave uh, with an album called Stoosh in 1996. Can I just say, when you look at the covers of Paranoid and Sunburnt and the, the cover of Stoosh, which has that sort of out-of-focus shot with skin in the foreground, I had a total Mandela effect moment because I was sure that the cover of the second album had been the cover of the first album and vice versa. Oh, I really? Just, yeah, I honestly couldn't get my fucking head around the chronology <laughs> of it at all. I th- but funnily enough, I think they were quite, and post-orgasmic chill, I think they were quite iconic record covers. Yeah. Even though I think Stoosh is the only actually good one, but all three were quite iconic because, well, I guess they were just quite ubiquitous in record shops in the 90s. Yeah. Definitely. The Mandela effect, by the way, that's going to get a call back later on as well. Um, but Stoosh, 1986, that peaked at number nine here, which wasn't actually as high as Paranoid and Sunburnt, but sold about 1.2 million copies, next to nothing in the USA, which is amazing when you consider uh, some of the tracks that are on it. Um, I don't know if anybody remembers this, but this track absolutely went to town with the versatility of CDs. Uh, and the kind of hidden track format so there's like a pre-track before track one if you go to track one and then rewind there's a pre-song and then there's three hidden tracks between tracks so if you go to the start of a song and then rewind back I think one oh, of them yeah. is like so on some CD players that would just play them automatically but then on some CD players you'd have to go and find them no on some C- uh, on all CD players you had to go and find them some CD players wouldn't be able to find them and if you tried to CDR copy it some CDR copies would just turn it into a new song. Do you know oh, what I mean? Okay. Yeah. So, um, and then there was a secret track at the end. So they really went for it in that. Uh, that was a thing for a while. Ash had done that as well. Significant Other by Limp Biscuit as well. That was like, they had little four second intros in all the songs. Yeah. Um, but yeah, some really, really big singles on Stoosh. Uh, I, I guess, what is it? The most streams on Spotify goes to uh, Hedonism just because it feels good. Just because you're 
37 million yeah uh, that's like a sort of chill alt rock anthem it's kind mm. of like um i don't know it's very oh, remember this life <laughs> the uh, yeah yeah um party of five what's what's that generation is that generation yeah. x Generation X, it's a kind of Doug, it's got a Douglas Copeland vibe to it. It absolutely Aye. does, yeah. Um, you know, it's it's strange because for me, the track "Week" is the, is their big song, which we'll talk about later on. But I mean, this is almost double that in streams, which is evidence of that sort of disappearing through the cracks of the great changeover thing. Um, I think this track's interesting for a couple of reasons. One, because scattered around the album she occasionally gets to get a bit more soulful and a bit more mm-hmm. Motown and gets got something a lot more bluesy to it and this track really gives her a platform to do that in the context of a single which didn't actually happen that often um, they, they, that tended to be album tracks um, I think it's also really interesting that when Skunk and Ansi do ballady songs ballad inverted invers- commas they almost never in fact I would probably say never do them sweetly Mm-hmm. They're they're almost all jaded or cynical or the music's nice but the message is dark. So this, you know, hedonism just because it feels good doesn't mean it's right. You know, all those kind of things. It's like they never went for a sweet song with a sweet sentiment as well. They they tried to counterbalance it to avoid being a bit too saccharine. Mm-hmm. Um but there's there's other big ones in this as well. I mean there's Twisted, which I think has got the subtitle of Every Day It Hurts. And All I Want, which are both like a bit pacier. The highest song they ever had in the UK charts at number 11 was Brazen, which is subtitled Weep. And uh, it's also worth mentioning in this album, the first track, yes, it's fucking political. political. Because I mean, it's kind of a response to the press sort of criticising, you know, can a band just be a band and be just ostensibly like, like overtly political and in, in their messaging is it not a bit trite and the song itself doesn't mince its words yes it's fucking political everything's political um the track as well does that when the riff kicks in and then drops to this grooving bass it sounds almost exactly like rage against machine yep thereby referencing i think their most common analog i also like the, the it finishes on a glorious pop song And it's funny, they actually mentioned it, that it was so poppy, they were worried that the record company would release it and they'd become known for it. So when they recorded it, they ended up just filling it with swear words so that it could never really be <laughs> released as a single, which I like because they're just writing the pop song as a pop song. 
rather than a pop song to try and be a hit. They'd obviously never listened to the Out Here Brothers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, and you, you spoke about the third album of the original trio of albums is Postergasmic Chill. And mm-hmm. it is interesting because this, this, this first set of albums do seem to form, like the, there is a consistency around them. They do feel like a unit. I know yeah. they weren't conceptually set up like that, but there is something about them that groups them together other than just the chronology. The Postergasmic Chill only got to number, well, only got to number 16 here, sold about 1.3 million, which is actually more than Stoosh. They just signed to Virgin for this as well, so it's their, their yeah. only major label record. Yeah, um, again, next to nothing in the USA though. Uh, it's, I mean, right off the bat, I mean, the track, the first track in this is called Charlie Big Potato. Which people that were, you know, around here at the time will probably recognise, even though it's much more esoteric, much nastier. They've been listening to the Prodigy. Yeah, yeah, they've been listening to the Prodigy, but also it's it's telling that it's 1999 and that Corn have been about for four years because the production they just come straight in with this really heavy-handed production. It, yeah. It's obviously a new metal era, albeit the audience have adjusted to that. They'd almost come to expect that, in fact. Um, there's little electronica samples everywhere because that was becoming in vogue. Um, the snare kind of gravitates towards sounding more like a piccolo and you get things like splash cymbals ringing out, which is a very mm-hmm. new metal thing, you know. It, it really sounds like that era. Um, there's a layer of like, synthesised strings that washes around the guitar uh, in that tune that kind of gives a bit of a proggy flavour a bit like Rage Against the Machine what's that tune that's in the Matrix when he flies away from the wake up. wake up yeah it's got a little bit of that and it's got a little bit of the kind of later era of Led Zeppelin in fact it starts with sitar as well doesn't it so it's it's got that kind of big stadium vibe because of that synth sample that they use um, I think the second one in that one's interesting on my hotel TV <laughs> that's it. She really pushes her London accent on yeah. it, I think, mm-hmm. to, to give it a much punkier edge. She doesn't pull any punches with the lyrics as well. No, not at all. <laughs> no, she's absolutely not averse to dropping some end bombs. Um, the seventh one on it, I think, is worth mentioning uh, secretly. That's the album's big track, according to Spotify, with 11 million streams. It was on the closing credits of uh, Cruel Intentions. Is that what it is? Ah. Right, yeah, so yeah. That- I think just after, what's the fucking song? Uh, Counting Crows, that piano one, that kind of finishes the film, and then this song comes Long in. December, Mr. Jones? No, it's like the piano one that's really sad. Recovering the Satellites? I don't know. Fuck knows. I don't know. Anyway, um... But I mean, I don't remember that song. So when I saw it, it had 11 million listens. I was like, fucking hell. But yeah, it must be because of that then. Uh, because it definitely doesn't land like a single. No, not really. Um, I will say that album, Poster Gizmic Chill, was more confrontational than I expected for a band that was 
enjoying so much success at that point, but it does also feel like they'd lost their songwriting mojo a bit. There's also like that song lately, they do suffer from being like, oh, we can definitely write, you know, festival headlining songs or radio friendly songs. But lately genuinely sounds like fucking Simply Red or something. (laughs) It's like got this weird total AOL, AOL? M-O-R. M-O-R, yeah. Farty bass. Um, yeah, I mean, they, they, they feel like they've just fallen a bit flat, given how many singles there are. I mean, I think there's five singles in the first one, there's four or five singles on the second one, and there's almost none on this. I mean, mm-hmm. I know they did release stuff, but there's almost none on it. It just seems like they kind of went off a cliff in terms of inspiration. Well, there's five singles released from this. Yeah, but what I mean is in terms of them being standout singles in right, the band's yeah. career. Yeah, big like, hooks. It, yeah, if you say the names of most of the other singles or hum a line, most people can latch onto them. At least people from our of our age and you know from from the UK or, or mainland Europe. Mm-hmm. But for this album, it's really really difficult to like, even listen to it. I'm like, fuck, I don't remember this. I don't remember this. Don't remember this. It just went off a cliff in in that respect. And you kind of wonder what they could have done on a major label had they had an album that was as prolific as Stoosh or Paranoid and Sunburnt. Um, so yeah, they broke up in 2001 as we mentioned And then they came back in 2009 And then they had their big comeback album uh, Wonderluster in 2010 um, I had never ever listened or even engaged with Or to be honest, probably wasn't even aware of The, the three subsequent albums from the Reformation onwards to date Or studio albums I know they've got some compilations and live records um, Wonderluster the three tracks that stood out were actually the first three for me, I think, maybe just because it got a little bit beige after that. I think God Only Lo- uh, sorry, God Loves Only You, the first one, was just, it, it starts in a surprisingly, and I would say probably misjudged, subdued fashion. I think, like, given that this was their comeback album, they should probably have, like, really exploded uh, out the block, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but to be fair, that song, it does have a really good chorus. And if that chorus had been attached to a better song or better verses, verses that were a bit less pedestrian, I think it could actually have made a, a bit of a dent. Yeah. Um, the second one, My Ugly Boy, uh, that's the single that actually preceded the album, but it seems like it got a bit of a lukewarm reception. To me, it's just a bit stodgy, a bit unremarkable. Um, I think, if I'm being honest, I think they played it safe in choosing that as a single. It's just sort of like generic MOR alternative rock with Skin's voice on it. Um, it, it should just be a filler track in an album. It's nothing special. Um, I would say the third one, Over the Love, the, the, the last one that really jumped out at me, is better than My Ugly Boy and has like this big killer's energy to it. And bearing in mind that the killers obviously were fucking absolutely killing it uh, mm. in you know 2009 2010 i think that probably been a better choice it would be more in tune with what was going on then rather than this kind of trite alt rock of the second one mm-hmm. there's also this like this record is it's well produced it's not terrible but I feel like it just suffers from not knowing what it is who they are 
it sounds like a big band back in a studio with no spark yeah absolutely um you know there's kind of nods to emo even and and stuff like that and it's just it's just it's a band past you know well past their best yeah going through the motions a wee bit i think um they in 2012 they brought out black traffic uh their fifth album overall again first track in it i will break you it comes this time really hot out the gates i think something it's that- darker and rockier this whole record mm-hmm. much more compressed guitar tone yeah, I'm not. I'm not a huge fan of the production, but in terms no. of the the, arra- the arrangement, I think they're more on it from the start in this one. Um, it's more rocking with like R A W K. You know, it's a little bit. Ugh. Um, I don't think I Will Break You is a great tune but I think they get the energy right for that first song which they didn't do in the previous one um, Spit You Out it seems to have been written collaboratively with this like oddly named French electro pop rock group called Shaka Punk or something like that I mean it's really strange because then it's a different singer and it seems like the whole band were involved I mean, it's, it's fine, it's nothing special. Uh, the fifth track in that, uh, I believed in you, was this album's sort of main single with the most play. kind of showcases the alt-rock dynamics and angular chords that were sort of a template in the early to mid-90s it's a wee bit anachronistic though as a result a bit uninspired um, again with that I think they're playing stuff pretty safe with the singles uh, okay maybe their, their audience are getting a bit old they know that or they think that their audience just want what they want you know it's like our audience listens to Skunk and Nancy for sort of like slightly edgy alt-rock that follows this formula but I just think they should have taken more chances because there are still good moments of melody and there are still actually in riffs that go in quite angular directions that show that they still had a little bit of passion but they just don't seem to want to follow it through and so ultimately not that many people have heard those better moments because when mm-hmm. you look at the, the, the amount of plays anyway I, think, I believe the news only song that really stuck out to me on that record um Wanderluster just just kind of became background music when I was listening to it. As much as I tried yeah, to focus yeah. on it, it was, it's like, I don't know, it's always got the feeling it's like, see somebody's like watching at the corner of your eye and you look at them and you can never quite catch them. That's kind of what that record's like to me. It's like, it's like Schrodinger's record. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think this is something that, well, maybe not as evident, but in the first record that we'll talk about, but definitely becomes apparent later on, is that what you've got is a really talented charismatic and interesting vocalist who is lyrically interesting can find a good hook and then you've got quite an average band behind her with not that many ideas and they maybe (laughs) used most of those ideas Mm. on the first record um and by the time you're you know into the third decade of the band you're really scraping around for exciting things yeah it's definitely sparse but i mean i think that the the guitarist or I mean I don't know if the guitarist is the one that, that does the bulk of the writing but it seems like he still wants to go in some unusual directions it's just a little bit too pub rock it's at times but I mean, they are getting the main, a bit the main yeah. songwriting impetus in the band I mean she's still the hook yeah um, uh, An Architecture 
2016 was their last studio album, which, first of all, has some really horrible cover art. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. Really, really <laughs> ugly coloured drawings. Like, it's total poundland in that respect. Um, but you know what? I think that record is surprisingly decent. I think it's maybe the best of the, the last three. Yeah, uh, the, the songwriting on it is very lean. They've really stripped everything back. They've, they've gone back to a more, like, electronic, sort of choppy, basic stuff, and like that sort of gothy electro vibe. And I think mm-hmm. that suits the playing, because mm-hmm. they were, now, you know, it just kind of works a little bit more. Although Love Someone Else would be a pretty powerful... 2005 indie electro tune and then I was like oh wait it's 2016 this record came out so you know it's not necessarily doing anything yeah, I mean, it's very, it's, it's bass-led, that tune, and that's quite cool. Um, you know, it's very minimalist, um, and it's got a really nice melodic lift in the chorus. It's quite understated. The, the writing on it's quite good. Shows mm. that they're pretty mature. Skin's voice is still great. Um, the second one on it, Victim... quite a cool heavy dub metal dub thing yeah I mean they're still being an angular rock band Um, I think the fourth one on that Death to the Lovers is where they show their kind of chart ambitions you know it's like a kind of vain stab at getting a little bit of chart attention again with this kind of electropop ballad I think overall that that track in particular is is especially too mild. I mean, I mean you're getting into the real weeds of of a of a 90s band's career here. This is like fucking Crash Test Dummies by like Album Seven on the mm. <laughs> on the mixtape uh, that we did, but it's okay. You know, when you actually give it the time of day, it's okay. What I think is striking about that is that I think the last three albums, I would suggest that there's probably one really pretty good album between them. If they had just taken from those three, not not them, not that they would, but if they'd taken from those three albums, 10 to 12 tunes, you would have a record that you're like, fucking hell, that's surprisingly good for a band that's, you know, coming back into a totally different musical world. Mm. Um, you know, I, I think that's impressive. For a, for, for a band at that stage I mean they had a great Stits album in 2009 before those three records called Smashes and Trashes um, it doesn't seem to have even so much as broken six figure sales possibly because of when it was released you know 2009 you had a huge crash in the sales uh, of, of hard copies um, obviously it's also the, the tracks are only drawn from the first three albums which a lot of people already owned but I mean, I, th- I do think that across those last three albums, there's a couple of tracks from Smashes and Trashes that could be removed and improved by the inclusion of some of the later ones. So that's as close as I can be to kind of positive mm. about that. I don't think everyone they've written since then has been inferior to the early stuff, albeit significantly less consistent um, and prolific. All right, okay, okay. Let's put a wee sock in it there because we're we've gone a little bit over time, and that's no bad thing. Next, we're going to talk about Skin and the artist singer herself, and then we are going to talk about the album, of course, and then do our nexus. So, 
join us for part two later on this week. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.